Good morning. Good morning. Diane and I have been looking forward to this time that we could come here and meet you and have an opportunity to just really see what God is doing, whether this would be a good match. Uh, but we've really appreciated your kindness, your welcome. Uh, we've enjoyed our stay very much so far. Now, I would like to have Diane stand so that you can see who she is. <laughs> and I wanted to make a good first impression, so. <laughs> it is my pleasure to be able to present God's word to you this morning. We're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry is found in all four gospel accounts, so that just shows how important it is for us to read and to understand this particular event. I have to tell you up front that I'll be reading from the New International Version. So beginning with verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep silent, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls. 
They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's where we conclude our reading from God's word. Members, friends of Escalon Christian Reformed Church. Diane and I have lived over 13 years in Syracuse, New York. And believe it or not, over the course of all of those years, we attended the New York State Fair, which is located just on the outskirts of Syracuse, only one time. Just once. You see, once you've walked through the animal barns, seen the variety of exhibits, smelled the mixture of leather saddles, grilled chicken, hay, eaten the famous loaded potato, tried out a chocolate-covered banana, and stuffed your bag full of all of the free handouts that you receive at the fair. After all of that excitement and overstimulation of the senses, you're ready just to go back and enjoy the rather quiet, familiar, relaxing atmosphere that you can only enjoy at home. Just to give you an idea of the magnitude of the, of the New York State Fair, according to statistics, and these were done in 2019, pre-COVID, according to those statistics, 100,000 people attended per day which adds up to over a million people over the course of the 10 days that the fair lasts. So you can imagine what it's like, the sounds, the smells, the sights, all of the different sensations that assault you as you make your rounds. And the feeling of claustrophobia as you stand in line for everything. Now why do I share? That example. What I'd like to do is encourage you to think in your mind of a similar experience that you've had. It could be at the State Fair. It could be at an amusement park. It could be at a large concert. That feeling of just being overwhelmed. Now with that in mind, we can just begin to understand a little bit of what the people experienced that very first Palm Sunday as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. We're going to set the stage a little bit first. It's the first week of Passover. And according to Jewish law, Anyone within a 20-mile radius of Jerusalem was required to come to celebrate the Passover feast. But in fact, in reality, Jews would travel from even much further or greater distances so that they could be in the holy city of Jerusalem and experience the Passover feast. So as a result, there was a festive holiday spirit that just seemed to fill the air. And the city of Jerusalem was crowded with people called pilgrims who came, who traveled from all over just to be there. 
Every inn is filled to capacity. And even the open ground all around the city of Jerusalem is covered with the tents of Jewish travelers who've come to share in the celebration. Along with that, every family brought a lamb, a special lamb that they had been putting aside, a lamb without blemish, to be offered as a sacrifice. An ancient historian, Josephus, estimated that at this particular time, this event in history, around 250,000 lambs were brought and slain for the Passover feast. Usually one lamb would be enough for eight to ten people, which means that the total amount of people gathered would be around two million. And Josephus said, before the week was over, the blood of those lambs would stain the cobblestones of the temple. So that gives you an idea, helps you understand the setting. Into this swirling mass of humanity, Jesus, the true Lamb of God, arrives. We're told in verse 28, after Jesus had said this, referring to the parable that precedes our text, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. We need to remember that Luke, ever since chapter 9 of his gospel, has literally traced the steps of Jesus from when he first set his face with determination to Jerusalem, knowing what was going to happen. He left Galilee, he passed through some of the lands of the Samaritans, went down to Jericho. There he healed Bartimaeus, the, the man who was blind. There he visited Zacchaeus, the tax collector of lower st uh, status, stature. Now he and his companions begin the final leg of their journey to Jerusalem. It's a distance of 18 miles. And it's difficult to travel because it's all uphill. Now Luke mentions two villages, Bethphage and Bethany. Both of them were located on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. First of all, he, he mentions Bethphage, which was closest to Jerusalem at the summit. The name is Hebrew. It means house of unripe figs. Bethphage was considered a suburb of Jerusalem. And so that is the first city that he mentions or village. The second one is Bethany, which was located further down on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It's uh, meaning in Hebrew is similar, house of many figs. This was the home of Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, Jesus had already raised Lazarus from the dead, and he had spent some time with his friends in Bethany. Now we come to our text. Jesus sends some of his disciples ahead to Bethphage, the closest to Jerusalem, in order to do something. He gives them instructions. And we're going to begin, first of all, by looking 
at our passage through the eyes or through the perspective of the disciples of Jesus. He gives them specific instructions. They're told to go to Bethphage to get a colt, specifically which was a foal from a donkey, and one that had not ever been ridden, so untrained. Now there's one slight problem. It's not their donkey. They're to go find and take somebody else's donkey. In verse 31, Jesus goes on to say to them, If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. I just want you to stop and think about this situation. Try to imagine it, because donkeys were the primary means of transportation. Donkeys were very valuable in ancient time. I'm going to try to bring it into modern-day perspective. Imagine that you just purchased a beautiful pickup truck with all of the accessories, everything. And here comes a group of strangers, let's say a couple of young men, they approach you and say, wow, that is an amazing truck. Hey, can we use it to move some of our furniture to our new apartment? Think carefully. How would you respond? Would you just toss them the keys and say, ha, here, go for it? I don't think so. But that's what happens here. As strange as it sounds, that's what the owners do. All they're told is the Lord needs it, and they obey. During that time, there was an ancient law that required citizens to give to the king anything that was needed in his service. So this is a defining moment. The owners of that young cult basically are acknowledging Jesus as king. That he needed their colt. And, that, and then they just went ahead and gave it. Now for an application this morning, we need to look at this and say, Jesus is our Lord. That's what we confess. That's what we believe. And because he is our Lord, he has the right to demand anything from us which is exactly what he does. He calls us to recognize his ownership of everything that we thought was our own. I so much enjoy question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The question is, would be similar to, what is it that brings you the greatest satisfaction, both in this life and the life to come? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What we're saying is that every part of our being belongs to Jesus Christ. 
Now let's look at what the disciples do next. In verse 35, it says, They brought it to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. Why is this significant? Well, first of all, when you think of a conquering or triumphant king, you think of him riding into the city with this white horse that's just strutting and prancing around. But there's no white horse for Jesus. He rides into the city, seated upon, we're told, the colt of a donkey. And not only that, what's striking is that it's unbroken. It's never been trained. No one has ever ridden on it. And yet this animal willingly allows Jesus to ride on its back. Actually, this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy going back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy. As I indicated earlier, they had certain customs one of them was that you give to the king whatever was needed for his service. Another custom was that when a king entered into a city to indicate, to symbolize that he wanted to conquer that city, he would ride the white horse. It was symbolic. Also, however, if the king came in peace, he would ride on a donkey. That tells us that Jesus is announcing that he is coming to Jerusalem in peace, not to conquer, not to bring war. It's a sign of his humility. So we've seen it through the perspective of the disciples. Let's now look at our text from the perspective of the people that are there. Verses 37 and 38 read, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now it's interesting because up to this point, Jesus has not really encouraged people to talk about who he was out in the public. When he healed the sick, he would often say, go, but do not share this news. Even when Peter made his great confession that Jesus is truly the Lord, the Son of God, he was told to kind of keep it under wraps. But now all of that changes. Jesus is making his triumphal entry. The time for remaining silent is past. We're told that even the stones would cry out if the people didn't. The king has arrived. And the song that the people sing is actually based from the passage, and this was not planned, that Pastor Dave used for the call to worship. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Now, this is significant. It helps us realize that we are approaching Passion Week. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he enters into that final phase of the week of his passion. Jesus, we are told, is the cornerstone. The builders would reject him. But it goes on to say, this is the Lord's doing. So that tells us something about the triumphal entry. It was specifically to show the lordship of Jesus Christ and God's plan of salvation. Few of the people who were there and witnessed the event really understood its full significance. Oh yes, on the surface, here we have people that have gathered and they're greeting their king. It's like a day of inauguration. They pave the road with their robes. They're waving palm branches in the air. And by the way, the other gospel accounts talk about waving the palm branches. But they're praising God. They're crying out. They're reciting scripture. But keep in mind that only a few days later, those same people would be saying, crucify him. How could they change so quickly? Well, they had false expectations. Those false expectations led to a great disappointment. And that led to them deserting their master in those final hours. They were looking for a military conqueror. They were looking for someone to overthrow Roman rule. And they think Jesus is doing this. You can compare them to fair weather sports fans. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Fair weather fans wave their banners and they shout and they cheer. But when their team loses, suddenly they're not cheering. I have to share an example in Syracuse University. My feeling is they have fair weather fans. And the reason is uh, my son Adam and I went to a football game held in the dome, which is the main facility used for sports. 40,000 Syracuse fans. Orange is the color that represents Syracuse. So we looked out and there was a wave, an ocean of orange. The first quarter, I went with my phone and I just took the panoramic. It was packed. It was amazing. But they were playing Louisville, who had a really, really good team. And we were really losing bad. By the third or the fourth quarter, halfway through, I look up, almost all empty seats. So I took another. This is the after. Fairweather fans, as long as their team is winning, great. But if they're not, see ya. That was the perspective of the people. Also, 
we see the Pharisees. They saw this as blasphemous. They were the defenders of the faith. So they approach Jesus and say, you need to stop this. They don't realize that for someone to say that, to make that claim, is amazing. They did not believe that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Now let's look at our passage from the perspective of Jesus. Beginning in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the little children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus looked around the city of Jerusalem, he wept. He wept. Why did he weep? We're given a few reasons in our text. In verse 42, if you, even you, had known, if you had known, again, remember, the context. The people are shouting forth his praise, waving palm branches, quoting from scripture. Yet, in spite of all these things, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. In fact, even his closest disciples who had been following him did not understand who he really was and what he was doing. And it's not as if they hadn't been told. Going back in history, Abraham had told them. Moses had spoken of it. All of the prophets had prophesied about it. And Jesus himself told them on more than one occasion that he was going to die and be raised again in three days. But they were still ignorant. Second, he wept because of their lack of action. Again, reading from verse 42. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. It's not enough to just know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Such a knowledge demands action. It demands a response on our part. Pastor Dave spoke about that last week when he talked about our feet need to be moving. We need to be doing things. He made a quote something like this, are you allowing God to transform your actions as you serve him. 
So the question I'd like for you to ponder is, what are you doing with the knowledge that you have? How are you using it? Jesus had just spoken prior to our text about the parable, or he spoke the parable of the talents. He says, if you don't use it, it'll be taken away from you. So, Jesus wept because of a lack of action. Third, he wept because of his compassion. Picking up with 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this is a prophecy made by Jesus that actually comes true in A.D. 70. The Roman general Titus went with three legions and he went into battle against Jerusalem. And instead of a head-on attack against the city, they built a huge wall all the way around out of dirt. So it was an earthen wall all the way around the city of Jerusalem so that no one could come and no one could go. And the people literally were starving, starving to death. And when the Romans finally did break into the city, they burned the temple all the way to the ground. They tore down and pulverized what remained. And they did such a good job that archaeologists today are still arguing about where the original temple was located. Jesus wept out of compassion, knowing what was going to happen. And finally, he wept because he was the answer. And they just didn't get it. At the very end, it says, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus wept because the people didn't understand that he was the fulfillment of every sacrifice offered. He was the fulfillment of every ceremony celebrated. Jesus was from God the sacrifice that was paid once for all. So we see Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. I think you and I should also be moved to tears. Just like Jesus who looked out and, and didn't just see a city, but the people. Knowing that he would die for their sins so that they could be set free. So that they might have joy and peace. He wept because he saw it and he wanted them to see it as well. A historical fact, and I, I don't think it's coincidental. It's from the, this very spot that Jesus wept that David had stood and looked at the city and wept. The story is found in 2 Samuel 15 verse 30. And David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went. 
His head was covered, and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him covered his head and went up weeping with him. This is the time when, G when uh, David was forced to flee from the city of Jerusalem because of the rebellion instigated by his son Absalom. And as he departed, he reached the Mount of Olives, and he must have, have looked back and just wept at that occasion. I think there's some parallel. Jesus is the son of David. He has come to Jerusalem. He is being welcomed like a king. But amidst this welcome, amidst this rejoicing and waving of palm branches and singing, Jesus is weeping. Weeping because of a different kind of rebellion. The rebellion of sin going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and a smooth-talking serpent. That was the ultimate reason. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that's why we also recognize and celebrate Palm Sunday. Jesus, once for all, is going to deal with this rebellion. But it's going to be costly. It will mean his death. His death on a cross. So we stand today and we profess Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the King of Kings. He rules all things. That's what we believe. Can we also say that our only comfort is that we are not our own, but we belong both in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. For then we will serve him forever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, what wondrous love, what great love we see as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, knowing full well what was going to happen, but realizing that it was necessary in order to pay the price for the sins of those, Lord, whom the Father had called. And because of his sacrifice, we are able to be righteous through being clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ to enter into eternal life. Oh Lord, what a marvelous gift. Help us to appreciate that gift and not only to know about it, not only to 
believe it, but also to share it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.